This morning, I want to um, return in our uh, series that we began last week, uh, looking at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 and 22, which we'll look at for the next uh, several weeks. Um, this morning, we're going to continue uh, from verse 9. Uh, where we left off last week, but we will um, indeed read the whole chapter now to give us the context as we uh, enter into <coughs> our <coughs> exposition this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. <clears throat> Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance was like a most rare jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The, walls, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, 
the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory the the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose are written, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, this is the word of the Lord, and it endures forever even here on earth as it is in heaven. Let us turn to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, as we read your word and we see what you have revealed to us about heaven, it is indeed a spectacular image that builds up in our head. And yet, O oh Lord, we can't even conceive of the greatness and the wonder of heaven fully here on earth. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us even as we try to unpack this picture language before us this day. Would you give us a clear sense and view of what heaven truly is? And Lord, more than that, would you give us a, a desire and a delight in anticipation of going there to be with you? Bless us, Lord, we pray. Bless us with your presence. Bless us with your understanding. Bless us with your Holy Spirit as we indeed enter into your presence this morning and as we consider these things together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is a, a delight to continue this look at the revelation at the doctrine of heaven in our vision to the end that we began. We said last week that many people believe in the concept of heaven. Far more Canadians believe in heaven, in fact, than believe in hell. But what's interesting, I think, as we start to continue to unpack this over the next couple of weeks, um, is that even though uh, Christians ought to believe in heaven, in fact, it's one of the, the main tools or joys of being a Christian is the anticipation of heaven, Many of us don't actually talk about it or really meditate on it. It's interesting that this is not just limited to sermons, uh, but it's also, uh, and books, it, it, popular books, it's, it's, it's also something that we see in our theology. Um, Pastor Ted Donnelly, who did an excellent little book that I can recommend highly to you called Heaven and Hell. Uh, it's published by the Banner of Truth. Um, but one of the things he noted is that in one of the greatest Reformed systematic theologies that has been written in the last 100 years, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, which has 784 pages, there is a single page, one page in all of the systematic theology devoted to the doctrine of heaven. And it seems that if that is what 
is the end and the goal and eternity and everything else, it, it seems like that might be a little bit too little for us. And I think, though, that this is, this is something that we see. And I was looking at some of the other things that are out there, and some of the more modern ones have, have put a little bit more in there. But there seems to be just a, a real lack of really solid, good, non-speculative um, views of heaven that have been, and studies of heaven that have been done. There's lots of, there, there have been lots of books written about heaven, okay? Lots of books written about angels. But the kind of books that have been published, especially in the last 10 years, um, there's been a slew of them. There's been a, a, a tremendous number of them written about heaven, but they tend to be this heavenly tourism type book, um, which have all kinds of extra biblical, that is stuff that's not in the Bible, sort of imported in and all kinds of speculation that's there. One of the most famous in the last 10 years was the best-selling book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And it was written by Kevin Malarkey. And I, I find that name rather ironic, but Kevin Malarkey was the author of this. And apparently he's the father of the boy Alex that was described. And it had all kinds of you know, fanciful notions of this boy that supposedly died and went to heaven and then came back. And, and this is something that captured the imagination. People like to, to think about heaven. And they have these romantic notions. And this book sold a million copies. And they even made a TV movie all about it. But then the boy at the center of it, Alex, in 2015, uh, wrote to Christian bookstores to disavow his father's account, said it was a complete fallacy, and said he said, in fact, he quote, in his letter, he said it was one of the most deceptive books ever. So that's kind of what we, what we have in our society, in our popular culture, is this, this whole sort of speculative view of heaven, nothing that is really rooted in reality. So what do we do? Well, as Reformed Christians, we we have the, the mantra, the, the, the motto of the Reformation, ad fontis, back to the sources, back to the source. We don't need to speculate if the scriptures indeed tell us already what we need to know. We don't need to have some child's dream or some fantastical uh, uh, understanding because the, the scriptures tell us very directly what heaven is all about. Now, the question that we have is, why don't we? Why are we caught up in these sort of fanciful notions of heaven? And why do we not focus on what the scriptures actually say? The scriptures actually reveal, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what the Lord has prepared in advance for those who loved him. But guess what? God has actually revealed it. That's what we read in our call to worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 to 10. The Lord, the Lord has revealed what heaven is to us in the scriptures. He has given us a clear outline of what is actually essential. A lot of people have taken this and, and, and they, they, have, they, 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 they don't think that it's sufficient. And they don't, they don't understand really what heaven is all about. And the question is, why do people do this? Why aren't people, why aren't Christians even 
as interested in the doctrine of heaven. And I think there's a number of reasons. Maybe some of those reasons have been eroded a bit in our current COVID uh, circumstance, but a lot of people think that heaven is far away. It's way off in the distance. It's not something that's, that's present or that can come upon us uh, immediately. We, we, we always think, even as we go, get older, that our, our, our death and going to heaven is something that's going to be, happen a long time from now. And as I said to you, a friend of mine was just preaching on heaven, and then he died that next week. And now he's there. That pastor is in heaven before Jesus Christ. And he wasn't anticipating that. He was trying to preach the word, I'm sure, for his people and to prepare them. But he himself was there in less than a couple of days after he preached that particular sermon. But I think because we have this perception that heaven is so far away, it, it, it is something that, that we sort of put off thinking about and meditating. And really, we, we, we miss out on so much encouragement and hope and strength that would help us to go through the middle of our lives, even as we anticipate the glorious end. But I think there are other reasons why even as Christians, we struggle to meditate on heaven. Another one, and this one kind of gets a little close to the bone, is that heaven may not seem all that attractive to us. Now, let me explain. If we're honest, and I think you sometimes have this view more when you're a child than when you're an adult, but even as adults, it's like, well, it's going to be kind of like a, an everlasting church service, right? And I know we're all here, we're, we're hearing the word, we're delighting in, in being together, but, you know, like an hour, a couple hours, three hours on a Sunday, that's, that's probably enough. We don't want millions of years uh, of, of preaching and, and teaching, do we? Right? Sometimes we have this sort of view that that's what heaven's going to be like. It's going to be like one long million billion year church service. That's not un entirely untrue, but... There's a sense in which that our weakness and our sinfulness and our impatience and our, and our lack of, of focus and the way that sin is infected, the way that we think and, and interact, that, that doesn't seem to be all that attractive. But perhaps I think one of the most compelling reasons why we don't think or meditate on heaven is, quite frankly, that we are indeed preoccupied with our current world with our current state of things. It, it just seems like whatever is closest to us is the thing that occupies our attention, right? We can look outside and we can see the sun, but if we put our hand in front of the sun, our hand can block out the sun and the thing that is closest to us dominates our attention. Um, and, and, and that obscures the reality of the situation. And honestly, this is something that, that Satan utilizes. He wants us to be caught up in the things of this world such that we do not have any view to the reality of heaven. He wants heaven to seem distant or boring, like a really long, boring uh, service. He wants us to miss the glory that is here, to be preoccupied with the things of earth. And frankly, it's one of his most effective strategies to distract them. I forget the quote, but uh, 
<clears throat> C.S. Lewis talks about how we become happy making mud pies and, and down here on earth instead of seeing the glory of the heavens before us. We, we're focused on the things right in front of us. One famous theologian illustrated it this way. He said when he got married, he had planned a beautiful honeymoon for to Bermuda, not Barbados. He would have had a better time, I'm sure. But he had planned a beautiful honeymoon to go to Bermuda with his newlywed bride. And he called a taxi to come pick them up and take them to the airport to fly them to Bermuda. And uh, because of a mix-up, the taxi didn't come. And so he and his new bride were there sitting for hours on top of their suitcases. Now, can you imagine what happened? What would happen if that taxi eventually came to pick them up? And if they were to just say, well, you know what? Um, we, we would kind of like to just stay here sitting on our suitcases. We don't really want to go to Bermuda. We don't really want to go to the final destination. We're kind of comfortable here. We're having a good little chat. You know, we're getting to know each other. Uh, just go on. If somebody said that, you'd think they were crazy in that sense. But I, I think that it's important for us to understand that as Jonathan Edwards has once said, many Christians live like this. They live like distracted travelers who take up residence in a hotel along the way, some flea-bitten Motel 6, instead of pressing on to the glorious destination of the celestial city. And I think that's really at the heart of one of the reasons why we do not spend time meditating on the end, but we're robbing ourselves we're robbing ourselves of hope. We're robbing ourselves of a, of, of a great tool of evangelistic witness. As we look and we see riots and as we see disease and as we see all of this all around us, if you're looking at this and this is all there is to life, that is depressing. That is <laughs> overwhelming. But a view of heaven helps us to see and to put things and to order things in, in the right way. If your destination is heaven, then what we can even anticipate is not enough. Again, 1 Corinthians 2, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But we can't forget what follows that verse. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. We don't need speculations. We don't need distractions. We have his word. He has given to us. And so God in many passages, but particularly in this passage, uh, in our passage this morning, Revelation 21, has given us a glorious vision of heaven. But we still have some challenges to appreciate and understand it. And I think that even the use of this language, what we call apocalyptic language, where we have picture on picture, where a city is also a bride, and, and our 21st century minds can't can't figure it out. We've been, uh, we've been completely affected by YouTube, and we try and think of everything visually, and, and we try and do this. But the, the pictures are meant to convey a deeper reality. We've we got to move beyond YouTube, and I don't mean into VR or to 3D. We need to understand that, that, that the pictures that are depicted for us in Revelation are of such depth and definition that they explode in our understanding, are beyond our mind. We talk about our minds being blown. There's a sense in which that is what happens when we contemplate this. It's too wonderful. And 
but it is not too wonderful for us to contemplate. God has revealed something of heaven to us, and there's great benefit and encouragement here as we look at this. So we're going to plunge in again to this language that we have, and we're going to look at it basically under two headings. We're going to back up a little bit and define heaven as we see it in the scriptures. And we'll do a little bit of a biblical theology. We'll trace it through the Old Testament to the New Testament and just to understand how is heaven presented. And then we're going to look more specifically in our passage here. We're going to see that heaven is a place with God. So first of all, we're going to define heaven. And I think it's fair. Last week I was saying that a lot of people think about heaven as kind of that Philadelphia cream cheese commercial with, you know, the, the, the puffy clouds and the angels with wings. But I would say it's fair to say that most Christians, or at least I hope most Christians, don't have that view of heaven. But I think that despite the fact that we don't have that view, we may not have a clear view of what heaven is. Last week we spoke about two aspects of heaven. We spoke about the newness of heaven and the purity of heaven. The newness of heaven, how there will be a, a newness, a restoration that will come. The heavens will come down and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a refreshment that, that occurs, a restoration. The neos that, that will, will be, uh, that there is a kainos without neos. There's a newness without totally blowing everything up, right? We have resurrected bodies and there will be some relationship to the old creation that's there. But this heaven that comes down, this new heaven, this kainos heaven, will also be a pure heaven. There will be no sin and no suffering. There will be no more tears. There will be no more chaos. The sea, which represents chaos, is taken out. That, that image of the sea. It's not that, as, as you, some of you saw, I put in CBC this week, a link to an article on the fact that you know, people are, are concerned there will be no oceans. That, that's not true at all. In fact, in the passage that we just read, we read about the water of life. The water imagery is all over the place. The point of the, the imagery of the sea, especially in the book of Revelation, is one of chaos. And when it says that there will be no more sea, it means that there will be no more chaos. And that is a wonderful thing. We've seen a lot of chaos in the news. We've seen uh, it just, there's just such uncertainty. And Many of us have chaos at various levels in our own lives. All that will be removed and order will be finally restored. We will no longer have the impediments to, uh, to, to doing anything. I remember, and I thought it was kind of interesting because I had a rather staid old professor uh, of theology in, in seminary. And he, he was, I, I didn't even know that he had ever seen uh, movies, but he talked about the movie The Matrix, where uh, the, 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 there is this ability where you can insert a chip into your head and, and all of a sudden you can learn Kung Fu or you can learn a skill and all of a sudden you become a master at it. And he said that was his best concept of, of what it would be like to learn without chaos. I can tell you, as many of you are discovering, homeschooling has its challenges. It's very hard to learn in the chaos of life, right? We, we have these, these real challenges um, that are there. All of those challenges will be removed. Our lack of concentration. We've been talking about prayer on Wednesday nights. And one of the things we said on Wednesday night is that we are often discouraged in our prayer. And we find it really hard to pray. 
because our minds wander and we're distracted and, and we're, we're <laughs> our, our selfishness and our self-preoccupation often comes out, our sin in our prayer, because we're so preoccupied with ourselves, we can't even concentrate for a minute or two on God. As Martin Luther said, he couldn't even say the Lord's Prayer without sinning, right? This is, this is uh, the, the, the preoccupation that we have, but, but that chaos and that selfishness and, and, and the disproportional focuses that we have, all of that will be removed and we will have perfect fellowship, perfect interaction, perfect attention, perfect ability in heaven. And that's part of the newness and the purity of heaven. And that's the joy. There, there'll be no more uncertainty, no more Zoom calls, right? We will be face-to-face -face in fellowship with God and each other. So that's what we looked at last week, the newness and the purity of God. But before I move on, I want to spend a little bit of time defining heaven biblically, looking through, through the scriptures a little bit. Because the word heaven, as it appears in the scriptures, typically in the Hebrew, Shemayan, and in the Greek, Uranos, in the Old and New Testament, the Old Testament being written in Hebrew and the New Testament being written originally in Greek, there are at least three ways that this is seen. And we talk about this, and I think it's helpful because even when we, we, talk, we hear the Apostle Paul being caught up into the third heaven, like, what is the third heaven? I don't even know what the first and the second are. But if we look at the way that the scriptures describe the heavens, there are actually really three ways that it, that, that it refers to. The first that we see is this, uh, this idea of the atmospheric heavens, okay? So that's basically the gas or the biosphere that's above us. For example, um, Isaiah refers to the rain from heaven and uh, in Daniel 4.23, it talks about the dew of heaven. Um, and so the atmosphere is one way that heaven is used. So sometimes when we, we see this word heaven in the Old Testament, it's talking about the atmosphere, right? The, the heavens there. And then there's, there's a second way that we see heaven being utilized in scripture, right? And that is the celestial heavens, the, the sky or the space. As Genesis 1 says, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And so these uses of heaven uh, share the same name as the place. And heaven is a place. And that's what we see the focus really of our chapter here is that heaven is a place. That's the main point from our passage today. But these two other uh, references, uh, uh, uses of heaven, also remind us and teach us where God, teach us things about where God dwells. We can learn about the invisible heaven from the visible heavens that are referred to there. For example, when, as we experience the rain and the dew, we are reminded of a mighty creator that is there. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And as we breathe, as we breathe in and out, in him we live, we move, we breathe, we have our being, right? That is a reminder of our God, is the fact that he has created this, the, the, the very atmosphere and creation that we can sustain ourselves in. But the, the, the atmospheric heaven 
And the, the celestial heavens can also remind us of God. Can remind us not just of his great creatorship, but also of his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. And he's put various signs of that for us. For example, in the, the, the narrative of the patriarch Noah in the Old Testament, um, when Noah is saved from the flood, the flood being God's wrath against sin, and where God basically wiped out the world's population, except for Noah and his family, out of wrath. Not some sort of happy-go-lucky sing-song thing that you see oftentimes in children's stories. The flood is the picture of God's wrath. But at the end of the flood, there is a sign that is put in, this, in, in, in the sky. In Genesis 9, 14, he says to Noah, he says, When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So the, 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 the skies are a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. As we see a, a rainbow, it is meant to remind us of God's restraint, of his covenant of preservation that he made with Noah, that he would not destroy us, even though our sin all of our sin collectively, individually, is enough to condemn us to hell forever. But God has graciously put that, 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 that sign in the skies as a, as, a, as a sign of his covenant faithfulness. So even though where he dwells is invisible to us, there are signs even in the heavens that are visible of who he is and what is there. And again, uh, in, in, in the, the Old Testament, in Genesis 15, when when God makes a promise to Abraham, and he, he takes him out, and he says, um, he says, look toward heaven, Genesis 15, verse 5, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And so, again, as we look up at the night sky and we see the stars, we are reminded of God's covenant faithfulness, that he took Abraham and made him the father of many nations. And indeed, uh, the, the descendants of Abraham uh, continue to, to, to grow and, and expand. And again, as we look at the heavens, we, we get a sense of our smallness. Psalm 8 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Right? We are that pale blue dot in the midst of nothing. We are, we are incredibly small and and in relation to God, as we consider the heavens, we see just a visual idea of the vastness of God. The greatness of God is, is something that the heavens teach us. Isaiah 40 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? We can't even conceive of how big the universe is. But God knows. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? So the atmospheric heavens and the, uh, uh, the celestial heavens give us a picture of heaven, the place itself. And heaven is a place because we see scripture speaking of it. Hebrews 9, 24 speaks of Jesus. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So 
there is this third use of heaven, which is the use that is really um, in, in play here in Revelation 21 and 22. And this is the dwelling place of God. Psalm 23 calls it, we will dwell in his house forever. And the Apostle Paul had a vision of this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He had this vision of the third heaven. This is indeed the heaven, which is the house of God. So heaven is ultimately God's dwelling place. Heaven is where God is and lives. And some of you are saying, well, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. You teach also, as Psalm 139 does, that God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere. And he, he, how can we say that, that, that God lives and dwells in heaven? Well, to say that God dwells in heaven is not to say that he is not elsewhere. I know it's hard for our human minds to comprehend because we can only sort of focus on one thing. I, I have difficulty doing more than one thing at a time. And again, that's part of my human nature. I am limited in my understanding and in my ability. But God is unlimited. And there is a sense in which God's presence is most clearly understood and felt in heaven. God's presence is also felt in hell. But what is felt in hell is God's wrath and God's judgment. In heaven, it is the fullness of his presence. It's sort of like coming into someone's home, right? When we come to someone's home, we, we get a sense of who they are. One of the, the joys that we have with our community groups is that we bring it into the homes. And there's, there's a reason why we did that. And that was started many years ago by my father, Pastor Lee. And we used to have our prayer meetings happen at the church. And we found that when people came to the church and they, they, they had a time of, of prayer, it was kind of a formal and stiff prayer. But as soon as we moved into the homes, there was a sense in which people became more open because that's more, they were more at home and they were more, uh, there, was, there was an intimacy that was there. And that's what heaven really is. Heaven is where God dwells. And there can be flashes of it. Uh, in terms of our own experience, maybe in your own uh, experience as a Christian, you have felt the presence of the Lord, and it is overwhelming. It is wonderful. Perhaps in worship, your heart has been caught up in, in great joy and wonder and delight, and you've gotten a, a taste, right? A taste. His grace is a down payment of his glory. You've got a taste of, of what heaven is. But, but, the, the idea here is that, that the dwelling place of God will be with man. And the whole of redemptive history is all about God coming back together, restoring the broken relationship that happened because of the Garden of Eden. You remember in the Garden of Eden, there was no, there was no barrier to fellowship with God. There was no barrier to joyful interaction. In fact, it speaks of, of God walking with Abraham and fellowshipping with him. But then because of Abraham's sin, Oh, sorry, Abraham, Adam, <laughs> excuse me, Adam and Eve sin. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, they were cast out of the garden. Why are they cast out? For their own safety. Because God is holy and he would destroy that which is evil. And so he cast them out to preserve them from his presence. But the whole of the Bible from then on is all about finding a way, God finding a way to reconcile 
man to himself again. And ultimately, he does it through his own sacrifice, by sending his own son to come and to pay the price for Adam and Eve's and, and Chris, Christopher and, and, and everyone else's sin, so that if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in the way, the truth, and the life that God has given, we have access again into the heavenlies. And we have that access now, but, but it's marred by sin in part. And we, we, we can't experience it fully until that consummation, the last day. But we have down payments on that. We have grace upon grace in our lives. As God shows us mercy and grace, as we worship, we can enter into the glory and the joy of God. And so we have certain indications. We have certain helps in this. And so we need to understand God's grace and his mercy in all of these things. Heaven is God's dwelling place where God is, where God lives. And heaven is where God is most seen and experienced. So as we turn then back to our passage here, secondly, we need to see that heaven is fundamentally a place with God. Here we see Heaven is a place. And again, I want to challenge our perceptions because I think, again, a lot of people have a perception of heaven, even Christians, that is wrong. Sometimes we think of heaven as sensual fulfillment. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is we get to, we think of heaven as the place where we, we, we get to see everybody that has already died before us. We get to to fly, we get to do um, all the things that we sort of, you know, yearn to do and, and, and do that. And we sort of see it as, as a place where there's, you know, the, the, the emphasis and the focus is really on our needs and our desires and all of those kinds of things. But heaven is not sensual fulfillment. Heaven is relational fulfillment. You see, there is a religion out there that promises sensual fulfillment. And that is Islam. Islam promises that paradise will be the fulfillment of all of our sensual delights, right? But Christian heaven is a fulfillment. It is a relational fulfillment. More than anything else, heaven is being with God. It's not a primarily a reunion of friends or being without sickness or sin or hunger or tears. Those are part of it, but primarily it's the blessing and the overawing glory of being in the presence of God. And we see this conveyed by the picture language here uh, in our passage. Look at verse 11. Here it says, uh, as it gives this description. He carried me away in the spirit, verse 10, to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Right again emphasizing that heaven is from God. It's not something that we get because we've earned and we've climbed our way up the ladder to heaven. No, heaven comes down from God. And it says, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, if you have read through the book of Revelation in one sitting, 
it really does help sometimes to read something through as a whole thing, as opposed to looking at it little bits and pieces. But if you did that, you would immediately have bells ringing in your head as you hear this description of that. Because back in chapter four of uh, Revelation, when John himself is ushered in his vision into the throne room of the Almighty God, he looks on uh, one seated on the throne of the universe. He says he saw one whose appearance was like Jasper and Carnelian. Now, what does this mean? Should we be going out and, and looking at what Jasper and Carnelian mean? And like, there are books, honestly, that have been written about uh, the various gems and gemstones that are here and, and trying to import all kinds of fanciful allegorical meaning into this. Allegory is where you just take something and then uh, apply uh, all kinds of other things to give it a totally different meaning. For example, one of the worst allegories I've ever heard is the story of David and Goliath, where, not the, the story, but, but the stones that David and Goliath, it says he, he picked out five stones. And, and someone somewhere has actually said that those five stones that he used to slay Goliath were the five points of Calvinism, okay? It's totally imported out of nowhere and, 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 and applied to it. And, and there are lots of people that have looked at the gemstones here in Revelation and have pulled all kinds of things that are out out there and, and try to read into what each of these stones mean. And I think that if we do that, we kind of miss the forest for the trees. We miss what is being conveyed here. Here is some attempt on John's part to describe the majesty and the beauty of God. And at the end of the book, as we see the new creation, the holy city, as he sees heaven, he says, heaven itself shines. The dwelling place of God, uh, the people of God, shines with the echo and the mirror of the character of God himself. So the gems that we see here in the city are a reflection of the gems that are in the throne room of God. They're a reflection of who he is, his greatness, his awesomeness that's there. The holiness of God shines back to him and shines from one another in the city of God, and its citizens are made to reflect its radiance and its splendor of his character. It's, it's a holy city. It's a reflection of God's holiness. And he's using this picture language, this beautiful, wonderful city that is beyond riches, the riches of what the earth could produce. It has to come down from heaven. It has to be so much greater. And, and look at how it's presented here. Uh, as it's described, we see its dimensions, verse um, 14, 15, 15 to 7. It, it, it says, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who had spoken with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city within his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, 12 times 12, right? Uh, <clears throat> which is also an angel's measurement. What's he describing here? What he's describing here is a cube. It's a square, perfect cube, right? Its length and its width are the same, and its height and its depth are the same. So what is he what are, we, what are we seeing here? What we're told here is the whole city is the holy place and the foundation stones all the way through this, this passage. The, these things are indeed a, a deliberate echo of the dimensions of something else. 
they're, they're a reflection of the dimensions of the, 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 the temple that was built in Jerusalem. So what we have here is no longer this temple that's in the city, in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, but the whole of the dwelling place of God is with the whole of the dwelling place of his people. It's a beautiful image because, indeed, Christ is the temple, and we dwell with Jesus Christ, and so we're not separated anymore. In the Old Covenant, they were separated from the Holy of Holies by, by, um, by a curtain that was torn when Jesus was crucified on the cross to symbolize that, that, and to anticipate this event when our dwelling place would be actually with God face to face. There would be no separation. The old covenant, only the priest could enter in. And we are limited in, even in, in the new covenant, we can, we can experience more, right? We can, we can reflect the glory of God better, but, but God dwells within us. God comes down and makes himself known in the new Jerusalem. The temple is, in that sense, expanded to the fullness of the space in which we exist. And so the, the, the temple dimensions are blown up, and that is, we will dwell within the temple. That is the picture that we have here. So here we have that wonderful picture. And we're told that this whole city is the holy place and the foundation stones. And we see this in verses 19. The foundations of the wall of the city are adorned with every jewel. The first was Jasper, the second Sapphire, the third Agate, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Onyx, the sixth Carnelian, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth Amethyst. Again, twelve tribes, twelve apostles. You're getting here, the, the numbers here, it's, it's not about you know, measuring it out. And I think one of the Bible translations actually does it in terms of miles and, you know, they go into all, that's not the point. They're missing the forest for the trees. The picture of this is of the glory here. Um, and, and, and again, this is reflected in the Old Testament imagery, right? The, uh, the, these jewels that we see described here are the same jewels that we see inscribed on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. And these jewels represented the tribes of Israel, represented the people of God. And the jewels on the, the high priest's breastplate was what he wore when he went into the most holy place. So all the language here and all the imagery is designed to communicate to us that the city of God, heaven itself, is the most holy place. That we get to go into the most holy place and be with God. All of that is to convey the wonder and the glory and the holiness of that. What is it like in heaven? There's nowhere unclean, nothing profane. Everywhere is the holy of holies. Because everywhere we are in the presence of God. You see, there is no such thing as a holy city. There is no such thing as a holy land. Israel is not the holy land. It's never the holy land. The only holy land that was ever in, in, in Israel was when God was dwelling there when he dwelled in the midst of them. But, but as we see in the Old Testament, he departs, right? Ichabod, the glory has departed. There's no holy city on earth. But this is the true holy city because it is the one that comes down from heaven. And why is it a holy city? Well, look at what verse 22 says. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, and the Lamb. 
and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It is a holy city. It shines in purity and righteousness because of the one whose purity and holiness and righteousness fills it. It's the holy place because God and the Lamb are here. And this is the consummation of our lives and our trajectories. This is what all of human history is pointing towards. A perfect God who dwells in a perfect place with a perfected people. All the muck and mire of our sins, all of the the, the, the challenges and the difficulties and, and the disease and, and, and the, 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 the struggles that we have, all of that is put away. We are perfected. A people can dwell. We can go into the presence of God without fear. Right? What is the universal response when angels come throughout the scriptures or when there's any sort of touching of heaven and earth? The universal response is fear, right? Isaiah, when he's caught up into, into heaven, he just sees the, the bottom of God's robe of his glory. And he's like, I am a man of unclean lips. And he's overwhelmed. And he's afraid. And we should be afraid because he is a holy God and we are not. We are full of sin. But the picture here is that we will be a perfected body, that we will be a perfected people. We will be finally cleansed and sanctified, and there will be no more barriers. There will be no more sin, and we'll be able to enter into worship purely. We'll be able to pray without losing track. We'll be able to trip. I know that sounds like a small thing, but it's a big thing. You know, have you ever been blessed in prayer and then gone back the next day? It's like, oh, I can't even put two words together, right? That stinks because there is joy in prayer. But many of us don't, don't. Don't experience it. Many of us struggle in part because of our sinful nature and everything else crowds it out. This is, a, this is a struggle that we have, working and living in this way. It's hard to even worship. Even our worship is affected by the thorns of our sin. But in heaven, all of that will be set aside and we'll be able to worship God perfectly. And we will be able to delight. And, and those little Thin little flashes, those little little things that you've experienced perhaps in your Christian walk where you've been so delighted as you've been contemplating these things and the joy that you've experienced, that will be unceasing and unending because there there will no longer be the distractions and, and the cares and the weights and all of those things because God will have brought order to the universe and he will reconcile himself with you. And so there will be nothing. He, his, his love and his protection and his care will surround us such that there's nothing for us to cry about, nothing for us to mourn about. It is a beautiful concept. Can you imagine your life without trouble at all? It's, it's, it's an overwhelming thing. It's something that's hard for us to even conceive of. But that's the picture here. This is the picture of the perfectedness of God's people, that they are able to dwell within the temple, within the Holy of Holies. We're not just in the outer courts with the Gentiles. We're in the Holy of Holies with God himself. Right? I think that movie depictions of, of heaven are terrible, um, for the most part, universally terrible. Uh, and, and anything theological is there. But if you remember the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they opened up the, the Ark, the, the, the Nazis' faces melted off, right? Because they couldn't be in the presence of, of God or whatever it was in that film. But, but, and, and that is actually the terror that we actually have, is that, that really, if we came into the presence of God now in our own strength, we would be melted. We would be 
completely blown away. But the picture here is of God coming down and bringing us to himself. And indeed, as Christ is our high priest, we can come into his presence. A perfect God who dwells in a perfect symmetrical place with a perfected people whose worship never ends and in a temple whose gates never shut, who need no sun or light source other than the light of God's presence. It's interesting in this chapter, the name of the Lord Jesus is not mentioned one time. Not by name, not by name at all. His, it's, he's referred though, he is here by his identity. He's called the Lamb, the Lamb. And the very first thing that Jesus was called by John the Baptist was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. How did he do that? Well, he did that by dying on the cross. Now, we can enter into the Holy of Holies. We can enter into heaven by the blood of the Lamb. By his work, we can come and worship him. And we don't need a lamp or a light because we have the lamp of the sun to guide us. Do you see this? Do you see here that, that the picture and, and the focus is not on the meaning of the particular jewels? It's to connect those jewels with the, the temple, with the holy of holies, with the, the, the breastplate of the, um, the, the, the chief priest. If you've been reading through your Bible, uh, your, your, your Bible um, plans, it's in the book of uh, Exodus, you'll see the description of the priest's breastplate, and you'll see these same uh, um, you'll see these same jewels. They are reflected, and all of that is to convey that our ultimate destination is the holy of holies, in the presence of God. Is that an attractive heaven to you? That's a valid question and an important one that you need to answer for yourself. This, this morning. You see, if heaven is being with God, is being with God something you delight in now? Do you delight to be in his presence in worship? I know we all get distracted and we all have sometimes really bad sermons um, and sometimes things don't go well. And in my house uh, last week when Pastor John was, was preaching, our dog was going all over the place and it was really distracting and really hard to, to concentrate right? Those things can happen. But do you have a general desire or delight in being in the presence of God in worship? Does it thrill you to consider his works, to sing his praise, to trust him through the ups and the downs of your life? Let me ask you, if you take no delight in those things, if you take no hope and no comfort in those things now, then why would you delight and take comfort in them in heaven? If the reality of who God is and your relationship with him is not something that's meaningful and real to you now, how can it be of comfort and encouragement to you to know that you will spend all of your time with him in heaven? And one of the things I want to challenge us as we consider this is to remember the relational aspects of our walk with God. We don't have a formal relationship with God in the sense that he is um, uh, a, uh, 
he, he sort of has, expects us to fulfill a list of things that we need to do in order to get it. So we, we come and we show him our resume at the end of, at the end of time. No, when we come into heaven, we don't show God our resume of good deeds. We show him Christ's resume. And Christ's resume is the cross where he paid the price for our sins. Because our resume is scarred and littered with our own sinfulness. But God, through Jesus Christ, reconciles us to himself. And doesn't just reconcile us to himself in heaven. That's the ultimate fulfillment. That's the, that's the end that's the, the dessert. That's the, 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 the fulfillment. We are, but we are justified. You can be justified by faith now. You can come into relationship with God now. And in fact, that is what we're urging you to do as we preach this, this, this gospel. Our desire for you is to engage now with the God who made you, to come to know and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you can know him now. So that as you see the uncertainty and the fear and everything else that around, you can you can have a fear that does not spoil, perish, or fade. You can have a fear of God. You can have a knowledge of a God who is in control of all these things, who is sovereign over everything, including the coronavirus. And who can help you with this hope of heaven to strengthen you, to indeed enable you to bear with the, the difficulties, knowing that the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And the promise of God is that he works all things together for our good, even the bad things he works towards good. Because as this passage says at the end there, in verse uh, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. He's talking about heaven. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose, are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But only those whose names are written in the book of life. You see, heaven isn't for everyone. It's not the natural outwork. I mean, we, 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 we see these things where somebody dies and they've lived a, a, an entirely sinful life and they're like, oh, he's in a better place. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because the Bible doesn't indicate that. We have to, again, move away from our senses and our notions to the reality of the word of God. Only those whose names are written in the book of life will be there. Heaven isn't for everyone. It is for people that are not satisfied sitting on their suitcases, who are not satisfied with this world, but have a desire for that which is greater, that which is pure, have a desire and a heart for fellowship with God, who are not satisfied with the flea-bitten Motel 6 on the way there. They have their hearts and their eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of their faith, even Jesus Christ. That's what... The book of Hebrews encourages us to do this. Fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Look for the upward call of Jesus Christ. Because in seeing that, in, in, in focusing on that, that will help us to be of earthly good. And we'll see that next week as we unpack uh, Revelation 22 a little bit together. But I hope as we have looked at this, as we have seen what this is, we see that, that heaven coming down is our entrance into the presence of God forever, the Holy of Holies, is coming down, and we are being granted entrance into it. That we have a God who said, they will be my people, and I will be their God. I will dwell with them. And that is glory. If you don't know the hope of heaven, my encouragement to you is don't sit on your suitcase. Cry out. Look for the map. 
It's right here. It's the word of God. The word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Look to God. Look to Jesus Christ. Trust in him. He will indeed guide your path. He will indeed put your steps and he will save you in his mercy and his grace. He does not turn anyone out who comes to him truly. Some of you may be struggling with assurance. Some of you may be struggling with all of those things. Here's the thing. God does not turn anyone away who truly comes to him. But you've got to get off the suitcase and respond to the call that he has given to you. He works in you to will and to work. Don't neglect this. This call to think, to meditate, to long for heaven because it's our home. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us not some speculation, but you've given us a clear sense of what heaven is. Heaven is where you dwell and where we ultimately, if we know you, will dwell in the holy of holies without, without any of the impediments that currently block us on all kinds of level that even make it hard for us to worship you and hard for us to concentrate and hard for us to communicate. But Lord, you work through your spirit and you break through all of that and you give us a vision of what is most glorious and most wonderful. A God who is gracious, a God who is kind, a God who is lovely, altogether lovely. And so Lord, I pray that you would help each of us, even as we meditate and as we think through these things, as we contemplate the vision of heaven, Lord, we pray that it would indeed fuel and direct our steps as we continue to worship and to glorify you. Help us, Lord. If there are those listening to this broadcast who do not have assurance or who do not know your grace, Lord, I pray, would you indeed make your presence known? Would you thrill their hearts with the mercy of Jesus Christ, that you are a God who desires to dwell with his people and indeed sent his son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life in heaven with him. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.